Well, uh, let me just acknowledge with all of you uh, some of the awkwardness of this gathering. Uh, it feels a little different than any other time you might come here. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm not always sure kind of how to handle you know, greeting one another and being together. It's just sort of a strange day. Um, in many ways, the tone of this service runs absolutely counter to my being. Uh, I love to have fun, to be loud and joyful. I am the eternal optimist. And then we enter this space on what is an undeniably heavy day in the Christian calendar. And so if you're right to feel some tension this morning. It's hard to reconcile the feelings that we may have as we enter this place because on one hand, we're happy to be together to, to, to express our worship, our thankfulness, our gratitude towards Christ and what he's done for us. We acknowledge that today is an important day, but then on the other hand, the reality of the events that we remember, they're hard, they're difficult, they're uncomfortable. And I'm the first one to want to gloss over this part of the story, to sanitize it. I want to come into a room like this and be comfortable with my coffee and my cushioned seat and a communion cup that's sealed and sterilized for my own protection. I want to sanitize this whole experience. I want to sing. I want to laugh. I want to face the realities of the cross. But if I'm really honest, I want to do them. I want to do that on my own terms. Really, I just want to get through today. So I can come back on Sunday and I can celebrate because I want the triumph, I want the miracle, I want the victory, but Friday forces me to slow down and to consider if I'm actually willing to participate in what it takes to get to that Sunday celebration because the celebration of new life only comes after death. This is the tension of Good Friday. So if you feel it this morning, you're in good company. Here's the question that's been rattling around in my head as I was getting prepared for this morning. The question is this, how did we get here? Like really, how did we get here to remember these events on this day like this in the way we have gathered? How is it possible that a baby born to nobodies in a forgotten part of the world who grew up thousands of years ago is remembered today because he died? A man who for 30 years, no one really paid any attention to. He lived in obscurity, serving people that were overlooked by those in power, while at the same time rejecting positions of authority himself. Yet thousands of years later, his is the name that we remember this morning. In a room like this, on a holiday, no less. How did one man's crucifixion, a lonely, brutal death on a hill outside of town, lead to the construction of cathedrals? Some of the most famous sites, uh, Christian sites on the planet, are going to be visited by millions and millions of worshipers today. They will gather to remember, like us, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And if you ever had the chance to stand in some of these types of places, you should do it. Places like St. Paul's Cathedral in London, or St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. Or maybe you could go to the not-quite-finished Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. That one will only take about 133 years to build. Cathedrals like these have been sites of spiritual pilgrims for hundreds of years. They, at their peaks, represented the power and magnificence of 
top architects and artists whose painstaking work pointed countless numbers of people towards the majesty of God. Now, these projects were often commissioned by those with power and influence. Many of them were built near the center of the city, and they require a staggering amount of resources. But to go and stand in some of these places, well, for many, it is a spiritual experience. So that lingering question I've had, it still remains, well, how did we get here? How did we get all of this? Because at some level, it seems absurd that all of this could could come from the horrific, lonely, humiliating death of the one called Jesus. And so here's what I want you to understand as we again look at the events we remember today. For 300 years, there were no places like this. They didn't exist. For the first followers of the way, they didn't gather in the finest places of worship where the coffee was free and the room was temperature controlled. Now, for those who first remembered the crucifixion of Christ, they did so outside of town. They went out to the outskirts, to the deserts. They had to get away. They fled these main places because they would be rejected for what they believed. For most people, in these first 100, 300 years after Jesus was crucified, nobody really wanted to believe all that that was there. Nobody really wanted to find a savior who said, sacrifice yourself for everyone else and then died. That didn't inspire many people in those first few hundred years. They had no interest in it. And so the followers of Jesus, the faithful, they had to go outside of the cities to worship him, to engage with their beliefs fully. And so for hundreds of years, following Jesus was just as he described to his disciples. Jesus says, the gateway to life was very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Now, there's some seasons in the history of the church that are more difficult than others, but it's widely agreed upon that somewhere between 303 and 312 AD were some of the absolute worst. Christians were terrorized, persecuted, tortured, and killed for their faith. They had no power, no authority, no political party, no beautiful churches, no massive cathedrals. In fact, Christians were known for their spilled blood, not their stained glass. But then something happened that would change Christianity forever. It was Constantine the Great, the Roman emperor who ruled from 306 to 337 AD, began to favor Christianity. And around the year 312, Constantine took a liking to this persecuted group, this group that had been suffering greatly. And there's many stories around sort of his move towards Christianity, but one of them is that at some point in his journey, he looked up into the sky and he saw what he believed to be a cross, and that opened him up to some of these ideals. And it was in February of 313, the Edict of Milan was signed, and this changed forever the status of Christians. It signified that the Roman Empire would change its approach towards Christianity. That from that day forward, Christians as well as other religions would be given legal status. And with that came a reprieve from the persecution they had suffered. Now, in all this is going on, Constantine, he sends his mother Helena to Jerusalem because now he is transfixed with the story of Christianity. And so he sends mom out to try and find Jesus' tomb. There's many stories also about what happened on that trip, but the result of it was the identification of a tomb that was thought to be the one belonging to Christ. 
Well, the search expanded, and tradition tells that there was then the discovery of three crosses, one of which is thought to belong to our Lord. So in 326, Constantine ordered the destruction of a Roman temple that was on that site, the site identified as the tomb, and instead put in its place the beginnings of a church, the first cathedral of sorts. It's called the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. Here's an image of what's thought to be the tomb of Christ. It's now adorned uh, with this structure. And so what you're seeing here on this lower screen is sort of the entryway into this tomb. You see this first structure that's been placed right on top of it. Try to uh, identify it, make sure people recognize what it is. Obviously, that's not what it looked like when Jesus went in there, okay? But that's the tomb. And then what you see is on the outside of these screens and, and through the back and into the top, there's this massive dome that's been placed on top of the tomb. And over hundreds and hundreds of years, as this site has grown and developed, it now encases where they think the crosses were, the journey all the way to the stone by which Jesus' body was prepared for burial, and then this, the tomb where they laid Jesus' body. As the church grew, it went through many different reimaginings and rebuildings and expansion, all leading to now what you can see as this massive structure in the Christian quarter of the old city in Jerusalem. And for 1,700 years, Christians of various denominations have now worshipped at that site, the very place which tradition holds as the primary locations for the events of Friday. Now, if you were to study the life of Constantine, and the events that led to the creation of this cathedral, you will discover many different views. Some ask fairly, how real was the emperor's faith? There's certainly many uh, historical events that he was a part of that would give pause to this idea. And while there were many advantages of this shift in Rome and the freedoms that it brought, there also became new problems. And here's why I'm telling you all about this. Because in the movement of Christianity in the 300s, from the deserts of the monastics, the margins of cultural power and influence, to the center of town in cathedrals of stone, something happened which could not be undone. Something that has significant impact on how you and I consider Good Friday today. Church historian Justo Gonzalez, he writes it this way. He says, the narrow gate of which Jesus had spoken had become so wide that countless multitudes were hurrying through it, many seeming to do so only in pursuit of privilege and position, without caring to delve too deeply into the meaning of Christian baptism and life under the cross. For the first 300 years after the crucifixion of Jesus, to follow him was to give up your power, to live outside of the system, to go out, you're going to face violence. You're going to face persecution. You may even face death because of what you believed in Jesus. To follow the teachings of this Messiah was to literally follow his practices straight into suffering. But the moment that Christianity changed from that lonely forgotten hill where Christ died to suddenly have all the power and resources to build the first cathedral literally on top of that very spot, everything changed. And don't get me wrong, I, I'm thankful that we can gather like this. 
I'm thankful that there are many beautiful churches whose artists created such beauty in architecture and painting that it pointed people's hearts towards God. I'm happy that I can worship freely with you all because I have sat shoulder to shoulder with those who cannot worship freely in parts of the world where they tell us we are not allowed to proclaim the good news of Jesus. And I'll be a voice that would cries for our religious freedom, but make no mistake, we must be careful because the early the earliest Christians, they understood Friday in a way that we don't. Because in our cultural moment, our addiction to power and status of Sunday, it risks us missing the whole thing altogether. Sunday without Friday, it misses the crux of the story. So we have to remember, yeah, Sunday we celebrate the victory, but on Friday we count the cost. And this is the lens by which we must look at the scripture. We must look at the practices of Jesus, the practices which led him to his death, not to find how to cling to power, but to see how he released it. This is how we will approach the text. So let's enter the story in the garden. This is Luke 22, starting verse 39. Then accompanied by the disciples, Jesus left the upstairs room and went as usual to the Mount of Olives. There he told them, pray that you will not give in to temptation. He walked away about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet I want your will to be done, not mine. Then an angel from heaven appeared and strengthened him. He prayed more fervently as he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. At last he stood up again and returned to the disciples only to find them asleep, exhausted from grief. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not give in to temptation. This part of the story reveals one of the core practices of Jesus. Throughout his life, he would go off to these lonely places, these isolated places, and he would pray. And here he is at the verge of the horrific events to come, and we see that he still defaults back to this same practice. Jesus goes to prayer admits problems. And we're given a remarkable view of what this prayer looked like, what it sounded like, what he was praying about. And the first thing we notice is that Jesus could be doing anything with the limited time that he has. He could be praying about anything. And what does he do? He prays very honestly that, that this whole thing would go away, that there'd be another way out. He goes to prayer and he invites his closest friends to come along with him. Is that what you would be doing if you knew you only had a few hours of freedom left? Jesus expresses his desire, and then he submits his wants. It's in Matthew's gospel we're told that it's Peter, James, and John that are brought along with Jesus to the garden. And I love this part of the story because it helps us understand Jesus' humanity. He longs for the companionship of his buddies. He just wants some of his guys near him as he's getting ready for all of this. But they struggle to be there for him the way he had hoped. They, they fall asleep. And Jesus is already suffering, although we don't always recognize it that way. He is in such agony that he's sweating blood. Jesus knew very well what this cup of suffering was. The Old Testament speaks about it all over the place. 
And he knew that he would need to drink that cup of suffering and that in doing so, it would allow him to be able to offer a purified cup, the cup that we will all share together this morning. But Jesus is honest. He doesn't pretend everything's all good. He's struggling. He's struggling and he lays down his own will, his own desire. And the answer to the prayer that he receives It's a hard one for us to grasp. Because God provides strengthening for the path ahead. He does not give him the removal of it. An angel shows up. This is a sign of God's presence. It's a way of of helping Jesus understand that, that the Father would be with him until that very end moment. But in the meantime, the Father is there. He's with him. And so he's strengthened to face what's ahead of them. This is vastly different than how most of us face suffering. We don't pray for strengthening. We long to be free of our suffering, to remove it, to mitigate it, to to just be done with it. We long for Sunday without Friday, and yet Jesus has not spared his trial, and my friends, you know this to be true. You will not be spared from all of yours either. But it is in prayer that Jesus is strengthened, and it is in prayer that you too can be strengthened to face the trials that you will have in your life. At the end of the prayer, Jesus says, your will be done, not mine. Your will be done, not mine. And he submits, he submits his will to that of the Father. My friends, this morning we remember that we also can be a people who go to prayer amidst our problems, who invite those who are near us to pray with us, to be close to us, that we too may be strengthened for the trials ahead. It's a hard call to follow Jesus this way, to submit the dreams you have for what Sunday should look like to the will of your heavenly Father on Friday in the midst of your trial. But this is the way of Jesus. Was Jesus is speaking to his closest friends, were then presented with this second scene, verse 47. But even as Jesus said this, a crowd approached, led by Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Judas walked over to Jesus to greet him with a kiss. But Jesus said, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? When the other disciples saw what was about to happen, they exclaimed, Lord, should we fight? We brought the swords. And one of them struck at the high priest's slave, slashing off his ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus spoke to the leading priests, the captains of the temple guard, and the elders who had come for him. Am I some dangerous revolutionary, he asked, that you come at me with swords and clubs to arrest me? Why didn't you arrest me in the temple? I was there every day. But this is your moment, the time when the power of darkness reigns. The second practice of Jesus on his way to the cross is healing amid hatred. That Jesus has been in prayer, he is strengthened, he's ready to face the arrest with composure. The disciples, on the other hand, they've been asleep and they're caught off guard by this moment. They're overcome with emotion. 
But they declare they're ready, not because they're prayed up. They say they're ready because we brought the swords. Now, we can't go into all of this, but previously, Jesus was trying to help the guys understand that he's going to have to go away, and they're going to need to, like, be ready to kind of move on without him. And so they're talking about all the supplies and all the stuff and the way they're going to need to live. And, and the guys go, well, we have two swords. And Jesus kind of goes, okay, that'll be enough. <laughs> just kind of like over it. And so here they are in the heat of the battle. They go, well, Jesus, we brought these two swords. We're, we're ready. And when we look at this, it seems ridiculous. I mean, uh, we know from one of the other gospels that it tells us that Peter, he's the one who starts swinging. That's very on brand for Peter. So he starts swinging the sword, you know, lops the guy's ear off. And we look at this and we just think, what are they thinking? We don't have stories in the gospel of Jesus, you know, packing swords around with him. We don't have stories of, of him calling people to violence. And so it's easy to look at this part of the story and think, come on, guys. But imagine it for just a moment from their perspective. Jesus has been telling the disciples that his time was coming, that he's going to be gone. He was going to be killed. And there they are out in the middle of the night. They're emotionally exhausted, and, and they know Jesus. They know something's wrong with him. So they fall asleep, and, and, and then they're awakened to the chastising of their Lord. That probably doesn't feel so great. And then who shows up? Judas. Judas, who was supposed to be a friend, a co-worker, someone who's been on their team, only this time he's with the mob, and he has the audacity to betray Jesus with a kiss. If you have ever been really betrayed... If you have ever really found yourself with your back up against the wall, you know exactly what it's like to grab the sword. Oh, it looks different now. But you know this exact moment. And as I've tried to place myself into this story, I think I may have reached for it also. Because self-preservation is a remarkably strong reaction. And it is insane how Jesus is able to just lay his aside. It's unbelievable. And it's in this scene that we're shown the final miracle of Jesus that's recorded in Luke's gospel. It, it isn't something miraculous, you know, massive like feeding the 5,000. It's, it's this simple little act. Jesus chooses to heal a non-life-threatening injury of an enemy. Jesus chooses healing amidst hatred. Imagine how intense this scene is. Like it's dark out, dark, dark, and, and all this is going on, and Peter's swinging the sword, and all these people are gathered, and then Jesus just steps into the chaos of the moment, and he takes control of the situation, not by yelling, not by throwing people to the ground, not by having his way, but by reaching out and touching someone who's been wounded in this fight. And you just imagine everyone standing there goes, what is this? Everybody knows why they're there. And Jesus chooses to heal. And then he just looks around and he says, like, am I some dangerous revolutionary? Am I a bandit? Am I some common criminal? Why are you doing this? And people know why they're doing this. We know why they're doing this. Because the people, the crowds that surrounded Jesus every day, they, they, they made this buffer that it made it impossible for him to be arrested because people knew that Jesus was not guilty of crimes. No, Jesus was, was 
challenging the religious, the political systems of the day. He was making waves, and so the powerful people, they, they didn't like this. And so instead, his enemies come at night, and they come with the betrayer leading the way. And Jesus, he, he recognizes the scene for what it is. He says, this is the moment where darkness reigns. But think about this for a moment. In, in, this, in this horrific situation where everything is about to change, things are going to dial up here, right in this moment, this, this, this unrestrained evil is about to take place, and Jesus chooses as his final miraculous act in this way is to say, I'm going to care for this slave, the one whose ear got chopped off, which, you know, like, I mean, all things considered, that's not the worst thing to have happen, right? And Jesus chooses, I'm going to reach in, I'm going I'm to heal this man, and then I'm going to walk this path. staggering. It's staggering. The second practice of Jesus on the way to his death is healing amidst hatred, and the disciples got this so wrong, and, and we often do as well. Like we're living in a day and age where it seems like there's nothing but outrage, where, where anything is just causes us to reach for the sword. And I get it. Like, I see social media. I read the news headlines every single day. It is easy to become furious about something, to become horrified or appalled at the world around us. I feel it. There are times where I want to fight. And let's be honest about this. It kind of sounds silly, but I think this is the actual kind of application point for us on this. While Peter grows, grabs the sword, most of us aren't grabbing for a sword. You know what most of us are grabbing for? It's kind of embarrassing to say. Most of us are grabbing a keyboard. We're grabbing our phone. We're making snippy comments. We're sending, you know, texts to each other and emails and posting on online forums. Dare I say we even use a witty meme. But we just think we're in our space and I'm going to just start typing madly and I'm going to just start swinging. And we have very little care for how those words land and how they impact people. At least when you've got a sword, you cut a guy's ear off, you hear him scream and you see it on the ground. But you can type away, click send, go on with your life and you have no idea the impact of your words and how they have landed on someone's heart. This is the world we live in where we're sanitized away from us and so I can cause chaos in your life and I'll carry on with my lunch. And Jesus shows us in the midst of hatred and people taking him on this journey, he will reach out and be a voice for healing right to the very end. This is what it means to follow Jesus. But it's at this point in the story that the officials take him. They take him to the high priest's home. They begin to mock him. And this is where the story gets really hard because now he's starting to be beaten. And eventually the elders, the, the entire council, take Jesus to Pilate, the Roman governor. And, and Pilate finds nothing wrong with what Jesus has done. He, he tries to release him, but the people won't have it. The council, they will not relent. And this detail comes out that Jesus is from Galilee. And so Pilate sort of finds this jurisdiction loophole. And he goes, oh, this is great. If you're from Galilee, well, that's kind of Herod's territory. And guess what? Herod just happens to also be in Jerusalem. So this is fantastic. I'm going I'm to send Jesus over to Herod. He can deal with this. And so this is what happens. And this takes us to our third scene. Herod was delighted at the opportunity to see Jesus. Because he had heard about him and had been hoping for a long time to see him perform a miracle. He asked Jesus question after question, but Jesus refused to answer. 
Meanwhile, the leading priests and the teachers of religious law stood there shouting their accusations. Then Herod and his soldiers began mocking and ridiculing Jesus. Finally, they put a royal robe on him and sent him back to Pilate. Herod and Pilate, who had been enemies before, became friends that day. In many stories, even today, you sort of are told these competing storylines. Now, in Luke's gospel, these storylines have been told between Jesus and Herod. And to be fair, the vast majority of the story has been about Jesus. But if you were to go back and trace this through, you would see kind of these little depictions of Herod and, and kind of his uh, story. And as he's kind of had this hatred towards Jesus, he wants to be able to kill Jesus. And so you're building up kind of this, this villain, this nemesis in Herod. And then you've got kind of Jesus' story. And it's all coming to this moment. It's all building to, to this text here in chapter 23. And we don't have time to unpack all of this, but, but this really is a big deal. This is what's been building to. It's like two conference rivals meeting each other in the playoffs. All of this has been building. And just as the text said, Herod was delighted to be able to see Jesus. So imagine all of this buildup, all this anticipation around Herod, who is the present you know, tenuous king of the Jews, and then here's Jesus, the, the coming king, the Messiah, and now here they are. They're going to come head to head. They're going to have the final face-off. This is like, you know, this is like episode nine in a ten-part series, okay? This is like the moment here. And instead of an epic shootout, or a dazzling lightsaber duel, or back-to-back three-point shots. None of that happens. Jesus disappoints. He doesn't give in to this expected outcome of rivals. He doesn't drop any clever one-liners. He he doesn't perform any miracles. (laughs) This is exactly what Herod wanted to see, and Jesus is like, "Mm, nah. Jesus just stands there question after question. No response. People yelling and screaming accusations against Jesus, and and he just takes it. And this is so startling that Herod and his soldiers begin to mock and ridicule Jesus because there's nothing left to do. There's nothing else to do. And even that couldn't get a rise out of Jesus. Because he knows that sometimes it's just not worth it. Jesus practices silence amidst slander. Jesus receives beatings. He's in the middle of his own trial. He's being asked to defend himself, and he's silent. And so back to Pilate he goes, and multiple times, Pilate states he can't find anything wrong with with Jesus either. He attempts to release him, but the people are just not having it. And despite the injustice of it all, it becomes very clear how little power Pilate the Roman governor even has. Because Pilate is not willing to risk his own power and privilege, he sends Jesus to the cross. And this is the risk we have in our time, in our day, when we hold power and comfort because we're so enthralled by the beauty of our stained glass that when we should risk it, that when we need to lay it down, that when we need to leverage it, we just can't. This is exactly what happens to Pilate. But for Jesus, I mean, when everything in us would scream out our defense, our rights, Jesus just stands there. This is the most unsurprising thing I'm going to say all morning. I struggle with silence. <laughs> like in key moments in my life where I should have just kept my mouth shut, I couldn't do it. Like 
I physically squirm and I just can't help myself at times. And generally, it's over something really stupid. And yet here is my Lord being torn apart physically and emotionally and somehow he just stands there and holds his tongue because he has learned to be comfortable and confident in the practice of silence. I have never faced anything like what Jesus has here, and yet because I'm so consumed with wanting people to know how right I am, even when I'm not, I can't shut up, and yet because I'm so consumed with this, I can't even see what's going on around me, and then here's the Holy One, perfection personified. He stands there. He's never done anything wrong. He's being persecuted by the people he came to save, and he's just quiet. He's just there, practicing his silence. And my friends, in our futile attempt to try to manage our image in front of the world around us, we struggle to find this same confidence in silence. Of being okay with not having to have the last word. With living in confidence that our silence on Friday will lead us to the joy of Sunday. This is the way of Jesus. Christ models three practices for us on the way to the cross. Prayer amidst problems, healing amidst hatred, and silence amidst slander. These are the markers of what it looks like to follow him. Not with power and privilege, but with self-sacrificial love. We're right at the end of the story. They took him, they broke his body, they shed his blood, and they nailed him to the cross, and they waited for him to die. And as the story concludes, we're given a glimpse of the impact of life lived this way. It's verse 44. By, the, by this time, it was about noon, and darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. The light from the sun was gone, and suddenly the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. Then Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands, and with those words he breathed his last. When the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what had happened, he worshipped God and said, Surely this man was innocent. And when all the crowd that came to see the crucifixion saw what had happened, they went home in deep sorrow. But Jesus' friends, including the woman who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching. This story contains many characters. Followers and friends, disciples, a deserter, criminals and kings, a governor and servants. But in all these interactions, there's one man's experience that ends the story for today. A Roman officer, the one in charge of making sure that Jesus is killed. He witnesses firsthand the single greatest paradox in all of history, he sees Christ's death. It's exactly what evil longed for, yet at the same time, it plants the seed from which all of the rest of us could find life. And as the Roman witnesses, the very earth itself react to Jesus laying down his life, choosing not to fight, not to cling to power, not to build his case, the Roman officer has a transformative experience. Do you see what's happening here? It isn't the splendor of a cathedral that does it. It isn't a well-laid-out defense in front of Herod. It wasn't a well-trained army who brought 
two swords to the garden, right? It, it wasn't his charitable status, the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. It wasn't even a semi-not-terrible Christian movie that did it. It wasn't any of that. It was an act of sacrifice, a series of difficult choices practiced over a lifetime that when that was lived out in the world, it cannot be ignored. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's what led this officer to worship. And that's the sacrifice we remember as we go to the table. And this is what we will do here together as we join in participating in what has been done by the church for thousands of years. So let me set up the experience we're going to participate in together. In just a moment, I'm going to ask you to, to get up and to come to the various servers that are located around the room. And what I want you to do is this. I want you to just pick up the little cup that's there. The bread's kind of in the top of it. And so you're just going to take that. Don't open it yet. Just hold on to it and come back to your seat. And if you're sitting somewhere in the room here now and you need some assistance, just let us know. We'll have someone kind of walking around or, or someone around you can definitely grab something for you. But we're going to gather the elements together. And then we're going to sit and hold them, and I'll lead us into this experience. So servers, you can take your places, and then we can all begin to move to pick up the elements.